Welcome to the Beyond the Books podcast, where we're talking with the experts solving the world's biggest problems. My name is Jonah Leinwand. And my name is Aryan Singh, and we would like to welcome you back to our podcast. Today's episode, Astrophysics and Cosmology, will feature Dr. Niyayesh Afshordi, who we would like to thank for joining us today. Dr. Afshordi is an Associate Professor of Physics and Astronomy at the University of Waterloo, as well as a faculty member at the Perimeter Institute for Theoretical Physics, and he received his PhD in Astrophysics from Princeton University. So Dr. Afshordi, your involvement in research is absolutely amazing. Could you tell us a little bit about yourself and your primary research topics? Uh, it's the pleasure uh, to be here. Hello to you guys and hello to your listeners. Um, thank you for having me. Uh, it's, uh, that's a tough question. And just on the queue, my son walked in, so we'll see how that goes. <laughs> um, what I've been most interested in is trying to understand uh, observational uh, routes that we could use to address uh, the big puzzles or questions we have in fundamental physics. And we have quite a few of them that have kind of piled up over the past century. There is the nature of uh, dark matter, which seems to be most of the gravity we see around us. Uh, that's most of the gravity comes from dark matter. But then there is dark energy, which seems to be constituting most of the energy of the universe. And uh, then there, is, there are missing baryons. There are basically most of the ordinary matter in the universe is also seems to be kind of uh, invisible to us. Um, and then beyond that, there's the nature of possibly the deepest mystery of the universe, which is the nature of quantum gravity. What happens when quantum mechanics and gravity meet together? And that's something that happens in the early universe at the time of Big Bang, but also in black holes. So I've been probably try trying to probe uh, observational routes that could address concretely these questions, or at least some aspects of these questions. So you mentioned quantum gravity as, as one of your topics of focus. Would you be able to, in, in basic terms, give us a rundown of what quantum gravity is? Absolutely. So quantum gravity is possibly the most fascinating puzzle, our deepest mystery that we've been uh, grappling with uh, for quite a long time. Uh, it's something that's very subtle. Uh, in principle, affects everything we do in our lives and across the universe, but its effect is so subtle that I mean we've been kind of able to live with this mystery for for such a long time without too many direct consequences. So what's what's what is this about? So we are all familiar with quantum mechanics and gravity in some sense. So quantum mechanics, although it sounds complicated, basically everything you use. Uh, the cell phone or the uh, laptop or the screens that you're using right now that relies on quantum mechanics, electronics, um, communications, um, your cars, everything we, we use these days is based on electronics that uses quantum mechanics very, very extensively. And it's a very well-tested model, almost 100 years old, which tells us how microscopic things work, uh, atoms, molecules, electrons. And on large scales, we are all familiar with gravity. We have satellites, we have airplanes, we have projectiles, uh, we have uh, planets and stars that we see that follow the laws of gravity. And the most modern version of the laws of gravity were first uh, 
proposed by Einstein, this theory of general relativity, which is a little bit more complicated than the original laws of gravity that Newton proposed. But nevertheless, uh, they describe our universe very well, and uh, it's, uh, it, it, it's called the theory of general relativity. Now, the problem is that these two sets of laws that are very, uh, each very, very successful in their own domain do not seem to work together very well. Uh, and this is known as the conundrum or the puzzle of quantum gravity. Uh, the problem is that most places that we want to use these laws, uh, you either use one or the other. On a small scales, a microscopic world, you use quantum mechanics. On larger scale, when you want to throw rockets into a space, uh, then you use gravity. But uh, you never really have to use both of them in a context where they're both uh, important, at least and in the same set of situation. Uh, and uh, that's where they, they don't work together. And we think that happens at the hearts of black holes, and we think that happens at the uh, at the beginning of the universe. Those are places where uh, we actually need theory of quantum gravity, but we cannot, uh, we, we, we don't have one. So building off the idea of gravitation, let's talk about black holes. Now black holes are probably the coolest but most unknown astronom astronomical phenomenon to ever exist. And I know that a lot of our listeners probably agree with that also. So my question is, what exactly is on the other side of a black hole? That's, a, that's an excellent question. And I can stop there. <laughs> <laughs> I, I can tell you more, but I think uh, everything else that I, I can tell you is not going to be an answer, but rather attempts at finding an answer to that question. Uh, there are textbook answers to these questions that tell you that if you fall through, uh, into a black hole, then for some time you don't notice anything. Now you slowly notice that uh, gravitational forces are pulling your legs harder than they pull your head. So you're, you're kind of starting to feel a squeezed, more and more squeezed. This is kind of known as a spaghettification. The black hole tends to turn you into uh, something very long and thin, uh, basically the gravitational forces because they are so asymmetric, right? And this is kind of a version of what happens uh, in the moon uh, due to the gravity of the moon that causes the tides, but kind of on a, a steroids, much, much stronger tides that causes everything to be kind of torn apart. So that's kind of the textbook answer, but we know the textbook answer misses something because even a textbook answer tells us that the closer you get to the center of a black hole, the harder it becomes for the theory of gravity to predict things because it actually, you have to uh, know something about what quantum world does because everything gets hotter and denser. And that's where you kind of start, start to need to use quantum mechanics. And as I told you, we don't know how to use quantum mechanics in gravity. So we know the textbook answer misses something, but we don't know exactly what it misses. Uh, it could be that everything that bizarre about quantum gravity and unknown happens deep inside the heart of the black hole. And we just have to travel some distance and then reach something that's very bizarre. And what that very bizarre thing is, people have different ideas. Stephen Hawking thought about baby universes at some point. Um, so let me close this door. And maybe we could tunnel into baby universes. Maybe we could come out of a white hole somewhere else in the universe. That's another speculation. 
But th there are other ideas that maybe there is no other side to the black hole. Maybe there is nothing inside. Maybe you cannot just, um, it's kind of a, some people call it a brick wall or a firewall. Just think dissolve as you reach the boundary of the black hole. And that's not something you expect from ordinary gravity, but, um, uh, but that's something that might be happening in a quantum theory of gravity. Now, one thing that I've been doing in terms of understanding this is trying to uh, probe this boundary of uh, the unknown, basically, where the things that we see and things that we don't see co uh, collide with each other. Can we probe that as deeply as possible? And in fact, if you look on the top of my head, I guess your, your, your readers cannot see things, or your, your listeners cannot see this, right? So the, the, my background picture has a bunch of things. Uh, is one of it supposed to be a black hole and another is supposed to represent echoes in gravitational waves, which are things that uh, you might be able to hear or at least your, your observatories might be able to see uh, if the, the horizon of a black hole is really some quantum fuzz that, rather than what classical relativity tells us. So it's like saying that uh, thinking about a, a very, very deep well and classical general relativity tells us that the black holes are infinite wells that if you shout into them, you'll never hear back your echo. But quantum mechanics may tell us, and we're not sure, but uh, it's a possibility, may tell us that these uh, wells are not really infinite. They are very, very deep. But if you shout into them, you're eventually going to hear your echo at some point. And these are the echoes that we're kind of listening for and hoping that tell us about the real nature of the black holes. So obviously you can't say for certain what's on the other side of a black hole because you've mm. never seen it. But there are lots of theories from experts like Stephen Hawking, other people like yourself in astrophysics who have these theories and these predictions. How do you come up with a, with a scientifically reliable prediction for what's on the other side of a black hole? That's an excellent question, and it's one that experts cannot agree on. So clearly, there is no unique answer to that question. Um, so usually, scientists, when they don't have a clear observational answer to a question, you cannot go and test something, then they think about thought experiments. And they basically think about scenarios that could happen if certain assumptions are true, and do they lead to contradictions or not? Basically, you make a bunch. Of, so this is basically how you do things in logic, that you make a bunch of assumptions and see, okay, so if these assumptions are all true, what could happen? And you kind of follow the, the, the line of argument using those assumptions as far as you can and see whether you hit a contradiction. So this is kind of what a lot of theorists do. Uh, unfortunately, the answers uh, a lot of times depends on the assumptions that you make and, uh, and not every time people agree with each other. That's why why this is a very powerful and productive line of argument that many theorists, including Stephen Hawking and others, very famous physicists have, uh, have used, that you cannot get all the answers that way. And that's why in, uh, in science and physics in particular, physics and astrophysics, we rely on observations to eventually decide what is the right picture and what is not the right picture. Uh, and that's kind of what we've been doing, that uh, there has been a lot of ideas and proposals, but they are all as good as each other. Um, and, they, and they are not really complete until they actually have an observational test. And that's really what's the final decider 
in, in physical sciences. Okay, and another really cool thing to look at is the representation of black holes in the media. So mm -hmm. I know that there are a lot of movies such as like Interstellar, which tried to create their own depiction of a black hole. And mm -hmm. also uh, last year, uh, everyone knows about this, but there were several organizations around the world that actually produced the first image of a black hole. So would you say that the depiction of black holes in movies, in the media is accurate? Uh, that's an interesting question. And I think uh, all the media representations uh, of black holes or in, in some level, all astrophysical phenomena, they all have their own limitations. Some are more accurate than others. Uh, and, uh, and I think this is all understandable that, uh, of course, every scientific observation has a lot of uh, subtleties. Uh, and if you want to kind of break this down for the general pub public, it could become confusing and there are always simplifications involved. Um, so, so, so I don't really blame, uh, well, I think some are more accurate than others. For example, the movie Interstellar, you have this kind of very uh, picturesque views of the black hole accretion around this giant supermassive black hole. Uh, and I think these were based on realistic simulations. However, those simulations were missing some effects in them because uh, the producer saw that those effects, for example, Doppler effect due to the motion of the uh, motion of the object. So it turns out that when uh, gas is moving towards you, it would be it look hotter, and if it's moving away from you, it looks colder. But the producer thought that it would look too confusing, and they didn't include this effect. Now, is it fair or not? So of course, it's not 100% accurate, but. Uh, um, I guess there was an artistic choice that was made that maybe that effect doesn't have to be included. Uh, so, so I think it's, it's kind of interesting to, and, and, and I, I think there, there's some artistic liberty that uh, I mean, media can take. Uh, uh, if it's pushed too far, it might bother some people. And I think it really depends on the limits. And I don't think there is really a hard limit for, uh, I mean, how much artistic liberty you, you take with science. That's a that's a great point, and it's a good good way to transition into our recurring segment in the news, where we pull relevant news stories about your research, and we'll just get your take on them. So the first topic that uh, we'd love to hear your opinion on is we saw recently that there was a publication from the monthly notices of the Royal Astronomical Society that found a black hole called J two one five seven that is. Mm -hmm approximately 34 billion times the mass of the sun. This is, they claim to be the largest black hole ever discovered. What is the significance of that? And, and how do you think that impacts astrophysics as a field? That's an excellent question. And um, it's, it, it has been kind of one of, uh, one of the races in, in, astro, uh, in extragalactic astronomy that, I mean, what is the biggest black hole that you could find. And so people have been kind of finding brighter and brighter quasars, uh, which are kind of these very bright objects that are, the quasar comes from the name quasi-stellar. So these are things that look like a point. You cannot say them from a point. It looks like a star uh, in your images. But, but then they actually measure their, their location. We can, uh, we can see that they're actually not in our galaxy, but they're much, much farther away. So they are tiny, 
they look like a star, but much, much farther away, that means that they're actually much, much brighter, actually millions of times or up to billions of times brighter than a star. So this would be one of those examples. And we've been finding these supermassive black holes at the centers of galaxies. Usually, basically, the bigger the galaxy, the bigger the black hole at the center. And it's kind of been a competition that, OK, so now how can we find, who can find the biggest one? And we've been kind of progressively finding bigger and bigger ones. Now, it is, a, it is a challenge to try to understand these very big black holes because we have limits on how fast black holes can actually feed. Now, these limits uh, are based on kind of simple physics that, for example, uh, we know that if uh, material is falling into something, then they should, they should they get hot and they emit light. And that light can push back the material that's falling in. So, so that actually puts a limit on how fast the black hole can grow. And getting grows faster than um, basically some limit has been a challenge. And that, that puts the challenge for basically making very big black holes because the bigger the black hole is, I mean, uh, the longer it takes to make it. And you have a finite age for the universe, which is like 14 billion years. So you don't have infinite time. So these are kind of pushing the limit of what the black hole could, uh, uh, could be on how they form them, or maybe somehow black holes manage to evade the limit that we have on how fast they grow. Uh, and there are other, uh, so these are kind of the technical difficulties that come in with making very big black holes. They're just very, very different beasts. Uh, that, for example, the material that falls into these huge black holes could actually be becoming gravitationally unstable and make its own stars, and then not end up going into the black hole. Uh, so that's, that's going to be a problem, or yet another problem that these big black holes have. So, so yeah, I think this is, this is a fascinating topic, which is, of course, is, is a new one. And people argue exactly what is the hard limit on how big the black hole can be. You know, it's so cool to learn about the existence of black holes in our universe, but it's also scary at the same time, knowing mm -hmm. that there could be a supermassive black hole that could just swallow our whole galaxy or like the whole solar system and just end all life. But yeah, I can transition to my question now. So in the year 2018... Me, if you don't mind me, let me correct. Uh, so, so, I mean, black holes sound as scary, but I, I think one thing that we always kind of say in our... Uh, in our, in our introductory astronomy courses, the black holes don't suck. So they, they, if you're far from a black hole, the gravity is just like anything else. Mm -hmm. So you have to get very close to them. And for that, you have to be very unlucky because they're very small on astronomical scales. So if, if, if you are very unlucky and end up next to a black hole, uh, then you could, would fall into it and you would be spaghettified. Uh, but, if you, uh, but for that, you have to be very unlucky. Oh, okay, okay. <laughs> we can so, sleep easy at night. Yeah. yeah. yeah there, there are much worse things that you have to worry about, like <laughs> yeah. probably. Yeah. yeah, but I guess I can transition to my question now. Mm -hmm. So in the year 2018, there were actually several researchers at the Perimeter Institute that proposed that there could be a potential mirror universe that is reflected across time. So after this proposal got out there, there were several research institutes that carried out independent research on this, which is still going on today. And it's so fascinating to learn about this. So I wanted to know your thoughts on this. Like, could this universe like actually exist? 
Uh, that's a, I think that's a fascinating direction is uh, one of my colleagues, Neil, about two of my colleagues, Neil Torak and Leighton Boyle and their collaborators worked on this. Um, and uh, it's, it's the, so the mirror universe is the mirror in time. So it's, it's, it's something that we don't, we wouldn't be able to see now. It's something that happened at the beginning of the universe. And it kind of, the idea is that you imagine you go back in time earlier and earlier, of course, as we know, uh, earlier times, uh, if you had a time machine, of course, I mean, we cannot go back in time, but imagine you had a time machine like in movies, it's time machines, and you kind of turn back the dial and go back in time like 5 billion, 6 billion, 8 billion, 10 billion. Now, what you notice is the universe gets hotter and hotter and more and more uniform. And at some point, the universe will be dominated by plasma and radiation because it's just so hot. Uh, and we know that there is this point of Big Bang where we don't exactly understand it around 14 billion years ago, where that was kind of the, 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 the boundary of our understanding. Uh, the universe had basically infinite density and temperature at that point. And we cannot really use the laws of physics as we know it to describe it. And what happens beyond that point or even beyond that point even existed is kind of the question of what's, what lies beyond the horizon of the black hole, which we don't really have the tools to address that. So there's a lot of a speculation. And uh, the interesting speculation that my colleagues had was that what if, what happens then is exactly the time reverse version of what, ha what is happening now. So basically then if you go back say to 15 billion years ago, universe was exactly the way it looked like 13 billion years ago. If you went back to 20 billion years ago, universe was exactly the same way it was, I don't know, 11 billion years ago. So basically, you're kind of going back in time, then it just becomes like going forward in time. You go beyond the Big Bang. So it's like you're, uh, you're turning back the clock, and then it looks like you're suddenly the direction of the time reverses, and it's like you're going forward in time. So that's kind of the idea of the mirror universe. It's not a mirror in a space, but rather a mirror in time. And that's, uh, so that's a fascinating idea. And of course, on its own, it's, it's not possible to test it because we don't really have a time machine. Uh, but you could actually imagine uh, some uh, predictions that comes from assuming consistent matching of this, uh, these two universes, the two mirror universes to each other, how they match uh, smoothly across uh, the boundary in time. And that makes some predictions, for example, about the nature of dark matter uh, and its density. Uh, so yeah, so that's kind of the, the idea there. And, and indeed, it could be tested uh, if, 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 it's a, if it's a true, correct theory. Okay, uh, thank you so much for your insight on that theory. I guess we can now move on to personal questions that focus more on you and how you got into your field of study. So I can start off here. So being passionate about your research is something that is extremely important and you are clearly really passionate about what you do. So my question is, what sparked this passion for astrophysics? Yeah, that's a, that's a good question. It's a question, I remember I used to think about it more often <laughs> when I was younger. Uh, but yeah, it's, it's becoming more and more, more, more and more of a distant memory and it's, it's become harder to remember these things. But uh, what I do remember was I was kind of, when I was at uh, middle school or even earlier, uh, primary school, I kind of uh, got interested in a space uh, and the space flights, and I used to collect all this, all this information about the astronauts who traveled into space, 
And kind of as I grew older, I decided that, and I was growing, growing up in, in Tehran, which is the capital of Iran. So I kind of said that, okay, going through a space is not going to be a very realistic option for me. But uh, studying astronomy in a space was a little bit more realistic and I guess more immediate possibility compared to going into a space. And of course, a bit more comfortable than actually going into space. So uh, I kind of got into astronomy at first as an amateur astronomer, uh, trying to understand the constellations, the stars. I had my own uh, small telescope, which I still actually have, although it's almost impossible to use it now. Uh, so, uh, and, and then basically as I grew older, I got into kind of understanding various astrophysical phenomena. Uh, and of course, to do that, you have to study physics, which I did. And I got into Physics Olympia, that this kind of helped me getting into the phys with physics program. Uh, as an undergrad at Sharif University in Tehran, and then uh, as a graduate student, uh, I ended up going to the US, uh, first Brown University and Princeton, and uh, I guess followed, followed the rest of the academic track into Harvard as a postdoc, and then into Canada uh, from my faculty positions. So that's, I guess, a brief summary. <laughs> Dr. Shorty, you describe your work in a, in a short video as saying you studied the deepest, darkest secrets of the universe. Now, to summarize this episode, imagine you were explaining the deepest, darkest secrets of the universe to your, to your kids, to your young kids. What would you tell them to get them interested in what you do? Yeah, um... Well, I mean, uh, I think my young kids, okay, the four-year-old and eight-year-old, and I'm kind of afraid of getting them as, as scared of the uh, deepest and darkest secret. So I would keep the deepest and darkest secret maybe for when they're a bit older, maybe around like 12, so maybe your audience, um, they could relate to that. But I think the deepest and darkest secret of the universe is the very nature of the nothing. Basically, we always think about things in the universe uh, as, as what gives it a structure, as what we have to understand. But I think the deepest and darkest secret of the universe is that the most complex thing about the universe to understand is the nature of nothing. So if they have nothing in the universe in a completely empty space, uh, what is going on and what's happening? So what is a vacuum? And that's the... I think that's, that, that's really the deepest secret that we've been trying to understand. Uh, black holes is one possibility, but of course we know that's not everything and we don't understand really black holes. Even in this room, if you empty the air, there is a still a vacuum which is full of quantum particles that go in and out. And these quantum particles still have gravity that interacts with them. Now what really happens at that deep level, level uh, for example, can lead to dark energy, could be related to dark matter somehow, could somehow inform us about black hole. So that's really the deepest and darkest uh, and most unappreciated nature uh, or question in physics, which is the nature of nothing. Dr. Afshorty, thank you so much for joining us for the Beyond the Books podcast. My name is Jonah Leinwand. And my name is Aryan Singh. And we'd like to thank you for listening to our podcast. We hope you can all join us on our next episode. Thanks.